0: Some feedback that I wasn't clear enough in the first few weeks. So I want to spell it out again. What's our vision? Well, we want to glorify God. We want to glorify God as we obey the Great Commission. If I want to boil it down to a simple phrase, it's something like that. We want to glorify God as we obey the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission, if you're you're new to the Christian faith, is the command that the risen Lord Jesus Christ gave to his apostles, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 28. Actually, let's look at that, shall we? Let's remind ourselves. Matthew chapter 28, you'll find that on page number 1001, 1001. Chapter 28 and verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You see, we don't have to come up with a mission statement. Here it is. Here is the Great Commission statement. Make disciples of all nations. So really our vision at Charlotte Chapel is we want to glorify God as we obey this Great Commission of making disciples of all nations. Now to put that Great Commission into three main goals... Uh, the, the letters RBS summarize it. RBS. i I'll keep saying this until you recite it in your sleep. R-B-S. We're not being funded by any bank of that name. Although we would accept... No, we won't. It stands for this. Reach, build, send. R-B-S. We want to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ... We want to build people up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to send people out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to reach, build, send. You got that? R-B-S? That's our vision. We want to glorify God as we obey the Great Commission. And we do it by reaching, building, and sending out with the gospel. Now, to help us really understand what this actually looks like in the context of a church, we've been working through the book of Philippians. Uh, week by week. We've been going through a section of the book of Philippians and to see really how this, this vision is worked out in this book. And I've, I've wanted to suggest to you that this golf club, this book, has, has one main focus and that is gospel partnership. I should have got you to check, shouldn't I? See if we've got that in. Gospel partnership. That's what I'm suggesting to you the book is about. That we as Christians are in the business of seeing the good news of Jesus Christ advance. Because that's how people meet with Jesus when they hear the good news about Jesus. They meet him as we proclaim this message. And as they uh, respond to this message by repentance and faith, they are forgiven of their sins, they are given eternal life, and they're made right with God, and they're incorporated into uh, the church. And that is what we're about, to see the gospel advance, to make disciples of all nations. Now, what is the biggest danger we face at Charlotte Chapel uh, that would hinder us achieving this vision? What's the biggest threat that we face that would hold us back from achieving these goals of Reach, Build, Send? I want to propose to you this morning that it is the besetting problem of many otherwise theologically sound evangelical churches. Uh, the mistake is this, of thinking that the gospel of Jesus Christ is only for outsiders. I want to suggest you that the biggest threat is that we think that the gospel is for outsiders and that we fail to see our constant need for the gospel in our own individual lives. I want to suggest to you that that is our biggest threat. Great churches that will transform lives for eternity not only contend for the gospel outside of the church in the world out there, but they cultivate a gospel-shaped mind within the church. And the lack of a gospel-shaped mind is what will hinder us from achieving this great commission. Now, I want to Suggest to you that it is possible to have heard the gospel, to have made an initial response to the gospel and have believed it, and yet to fail to allow the truth of the gospel to continually challenge and change us in our Christian lives. It is possible to be in an arrested state of development. It is possible for a church to get stuck in an arrested state of development. And I think it is the lack of personal and corporate applications of the gospel to our life as a church, to our lives as individuals, that is the biggest threat to us being useful gospel partners of making a difference in the world. Now, that may sound a bit highfalutin at this point. So I want to earth that in the book of Philippians. So open your Bibles back up to Philippians chapter 2. Let me illustrate what I mean from Philippians chapter 2. And you'll find that on page 1,000... 179, 1179 in these red church Bibles. 1179, Philippians chapter 2. Let's read. I'm going to read this to you. So you might want to follow along. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves." Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, these words are familiar to many of us who have been Christians for many years. Perhaps they're new to some. So we seek your grace that you would soften our hearts and open our minds to understand this truth that it would not just be intellectual, but it would change and transform our hearts and our attitudes and the way we treat one another. And we ask this, that Christ may get all the glory in his precious name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, you, you maybe recall that I suggested that the main application of the, of the book of Philippians is there in, in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul is in prison. He's writing for the church in Philippi. He doesn't know whether he's going to get out or not, and this is what he says to them in 127. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. This idea that we have in this section of Philippians, that as citizens of heaven... As people in Christ, he calls them to live lives worthy of the gospel. And the first way that they were to do that was under that image of gladiators. uh, Standing together. See that in verse 27? Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel they needed to stand firm with gospel purpose. They needed to stand together and make an impact. They were facing opponents out there. There were people out there who were trying to frighten them, to try and scare them off from following Christ, to scare them from from being living witnesses to Christ in Philippi. Because they were sharing the gospel, they were facing opposition. And Paul first way that Paul encourages them to to live lives worthy of the gospel. He says you've got to contend together as one group for the sake of the gospel. Strive side by side, contend for the gospel. As you look to the world, you must be absolutely united if you're going to make a difference in the world, if you're going to live lives worthy of the gospel. That was last week. But you know, the big threat to this church in Philippi was not the threat that was outside. It was the threat that they faced on the inside. And I would suggest to you that's exactly the same with us. Our greatest challenge today is not the rise of Islam, it's not the uh, seduction of secularism and materialism, although these are great threats. The great danger that we face as a church is the threat that comes from inside. And quite simply, it is the threat of disunity disunity how can you stand together as one against the world if internally you're riven by divisions and strife and that's what Paul goes on to now this was a letter that was a thank you letter for uh, receiving some money from them they sent Epaphroditus Uh, Epaphroditus brought money cared for Paul in prison Paul wrote this letter gave it to Epaphroditus and sent him back. So Epaphroditus, he comes back to Philippi. And can you imagine that first Sunday when the letter arrives? And um, Epaphroditus, maybe, if he was a good reader, would say, Epaphroditus, have you got something? Yes, I've got something from, from Brother Paul. I have a letter. Come, come, let's read it. Let's read it. So the whole church is gathered. And the letter is going to be read out to the whole church together. Now... If you know this letter, you know that there's a big moment coming up. And the big moment is in chapter 4. Come and have a look at it with me. In chapter 4, this public letter is going to get very personal. Very personal indeed. He names names, he names two women. And maybe when I preach this section, I might start naming names as well in line with Scripture. We'll see. See how it goes. 4 verse 2, a frisson of excitement there, wasn't there? 4 verse 2, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche, two women, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal Yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life if we'd been there that morning in that church we would have uh, if we would have observed carefully from the front we'd have seen people coming in lots of people chatting but uh, there were two women who would have come in opposite doors probably one would have come from up there in the balcony and one down here because that way they wouldn't have to meet each other and if you'd observed the body language uh, there would be no looks shared no pleasant encouraging smiles in fact a distinctly frosty atmosphere between Yodi and Syntyche we don't know what the conflict's about but these people were people who in the past had been gladiators for Jesus with Paul they had stood side by side with Paul when he preached the gospel of Philippi they had contended by the, the apostle's side these were great women weren't they Women who had been changed by Jesus and who were living their lives for Jesus and were great co-workers with Paul, standing uh, by his side, contending for the cause of the gospel. Great women. But what had happened? They're now separated. They're now in disagreement and a disunity that threatens... The very unity of the church. That's where we're kind of heading. Now, how do you deal with people in conflict, Christians in conflict? What do you do if you are in conflict yourself with another Christian? I suspect in a church of our size, there will be people, and that's exactly been your behavior today. You've come in joyfully, and you look at that person, and your joy just goes away. You just, your smile goes, and in your heart, the same bitter feelings and emotions are rising up in your mouth and you can't even look at them. Now, how do you deal with that? Uh, I mean, you could just go up to people and say, stop it! Stop it! Come on, hug each other. Teletubbies, make good friends. Hug each other. Well, I don't think that really works. Now, the Apostle Paul... He's building up to this moment, isn't he? So come back to chapter 2. And here's his appeal. Now I take it that he's writing to genuine Christians. We know they were great Christians. They, 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 they contended for the gospel with Paul. So these are Christian people. But there's a problem. And so Paul appeals to them on the basis of the gospel. Now can you imagine these words... Going out that day in Philippi, maybe you need to hear these words yourself if you're struggling with um, bitterness. If there's conflict between you and another Christian believer or groups of believers, maybe you need to hear these words yourself. Listen to these words. If you have 2 1, if you have any encouragement, don't you love that? Do you have any encouragement? from being united with Christ. Oh, it's worth meditating on, isn't it? Uh, If you're not a Christian, this won't mean much to you today. We're so glad you're here listening in. But, you know, if you are a Christian, you think about that. Have you received any encouragement from being united with Christ? Oh, well, meditate on that for a while. Yes, surely. Great encouragement. Great encouragement. If any comfort from his love have you experienced any comfort from knowing God's love to you in Jesus oh yes oh no doubt <laughs> they were you know they were as as we are today if you understand the gospel amazed to know and experience God's love extraordinary goes on if any fellowship with the spirit if any tenderness Compassion? Well, yes. Yes. They knew their lives would be transformed inside out by God's Holy Spirit. Oh, they knew something of how the Spirit softened their hearts through the gospel. Well, if you've known any of that, Paul says. Verse 2. Then you need to cultivate a gospel-shaped mind. If 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 the gospel has transformed you in any way, then our job is not to say, okay, yes, I got the gospel 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, now, you know, I've moved on. No, we never move on from the gospel. If you've got the gospel, you need to cultivate a gospel-shaped mind, he says. Now look at verse 2. If you've experienced any encouragement, any comfort, any fellowship, well, yes, then verse 2, make my joy complete, Paul says. He's troubled as he hears about the potential divisions in that church. It grieves its heart as it would grieve any person's heart who loves the church. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Divisions and disagreements are threatening to break up this wonderful church because people were failing to apply the gospel to their lives together. And, of course, that is the sort of thing that still breaks up churches today, isn't it? It is the sort of thing that still breaks up Christian marriages today when people fail to apply the gospel to their lives, when we as Christians forget to apply what we know about the gospel to our attitudes and to our behavior. Now, it, it's, it's hard as you stand uh, on, a, on a wedding day You look at this couple, and it's hard for them to ever imagine that there'll ever be a day when there'll be great conflict and disagreement. They look at each other, and all they hear is birds tweeting, and the sun is shining, and and everything's glorious, and they're beautiful, and he's a hunk, and we're getting together, and this is going to be great. What can go wrong? We love each other. Now, the people with the ruthful smiles are those who've been married many years now. See, there's a day coming, we all know it, when all those things that you thought were really delightful and refreshingly different about the other person will drive you mad. They'll drive you crazy. And for healthy marriages, for healthy churches, we need to cultivate a gospel shaped mind. As a new Christian, full of the joy of the gospel, and then suddenly you look around and this is not a boring old place with a fusty old book, but here's a family with a living word. And you think, this is fantastic. What can go wrong? I'm a Christian. These are Christians. It's going to be great. You can never imagine that there could be any problem being with Christians. And you get a bit older. And you realize that for a healthy church, we need to cultivate a gospel-shaped mind. See, that's what Paul is saying. To be like Mind it, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You see, that is a call to, to, to us as Christians to conform our thinking and conform our affections. Do you see that? It's not just the mind, it is our love. We need to conform our thinking and affections. We need to conform our motivation to the goals and the truth of Jesus Christ. And this requires effort. This requires continual effort. Continual effort in a marriage, continual effort in a church to continue conforming our thinking and affections and motivations to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is absolutely vital. And the lack of it will mean that we will not have any influence in this city. But if we work at this, by God's grace, this will be a useful church that will advance the gospel. So stakes are high, aren't they? Now, what what is this gospel-shaped mind? Well, there we have it in verse 5 to 11. And I am so aware of... What a glorious topic this is, and how woefully I will deal with it. Because here, as we think about the uh, the gospel, here we think about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the very centre of this book. This drives everything, and a thousand sermons would not be enough. Would not exhaust uh, the depths that are here. But I want us just to briefly look and examine at this gospel-shaped mind. Verse 5, your attitude, your mindset, if you want to use that phrase, if it helps you, your, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. When a marriage hits a difficult spot, when a church hits a difficult spot, when you and your relationships with other Christians hit a difficult spot and you have managed to dig yourself into deeply entrenched hurt, bitterness, and resentment towards other people, come back to these verses. Our attitude should be the same as of Christ Jesus. And I want to give you two phrases that are well worth memorizing. Two phrases that I want you to think about Bringing back to your mind regularly as you face conflict and tensions and difficulties in whatever relationships you're involved with. Two words. Firstly, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. That's the first truth to remember. He humbled himself. And the second truth, therefore God exalted him therefore God exalted him. That's what I want us to reflect on this morning. He humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. That's what I want to hit home to every mind, every heart in this room today. He humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. If we get this truth from here to here, it's it's going to transform our life. It's going to transform this church. It'll transform our marriages. He humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. So let's think about this. He humbled himself, verses 6 to 8. Who is being referred to as he? Well, look at verse 6. It is the one who deserves to be honored and served and worshipped as God. It is the one who was co-equal with God before the creation of the world. This is the one who humbled himself. Verse 6, who being in very nature God. The Bible is crystal clear that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. Jesus had a pre-existent, before he came into the world, as God the Son. Part of the triune God for all eternity. And he who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grabbed hold of. God the Son did not try to maximize the benefits of being God. He didn't claim all the maximum on his expense forms. That was his due. As one with all power and authority, he had the whole thing. But he says, no, I'm not going to grab hold of the whole thing. Verse 7. But made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus considered his deity an opportunity for service and obedience this tells you something quite incredible about the god who made everything the one true living god he considered jesus considered his deity an opportunity for service and obedience his deity became a matter not of getting but of giving not of being served but of serving he saw his position not of one of, of achieving dominance, but of obedience. Now there is no comparison to this. We saw the Queen of England just a moment ago at the Cenotaph. She does not come around people's houses in Britain to clean their toilets, does she? Wouldn't expect her to. Bill Gates. Do you know what? My PC crashed so many times. Not once did Bill Gates come around to fix my PC. Not once. Nothing can compare to this gospel reality. Because he was God, he humbled himself. That's extraordinary. He took on human flesh, he became a man. He poured his deity into the form of a humble servant. He chose to experience the limitations and deprivations of being born into a poor family in Nazareth, of experiencing homelessness, of experiencing rejection and suffering. And in obedience to the eternal plan of of salvation, he chose to die even the most horrendous, shocking death of crucifixion. And how that would have stuck in the throat of his Roman listeners who knew what this was. And we need to remember this. The God of glory humbled himself. The God of glory humbled himself. I want to suggest to you that a lot of our misery and heartache is self-created. We dig foxholes for ourselves of misery and heartache because we have in our minds needs and demands that we have a right to. That we demand should be met. We demand they should be met by our spouse. We demand they should be met by our leaders. We demand they should be met by those around us. And when they appear to be frustrated and refused, we dig ourselves into a foxhole of misery. And we devise sinful and manipulative ways that will force other people to give us what we believe is our rightful due. We can do that in our marriages. We can do that in church life with a series of expectations and demands we put on elders and fellowship group leaders and ways that other Christians must come through for me, for us. You know, there's a danger even that we can view our ministry in the church as really the most important thing in the church. What I do is the most important thing, we think to ourselves. And we can see our ministry as the the one thing that really gives us meaning and value in life. And so when someone suggests that things change or maybe even things stop, we get very upset and angry. This is my thing. And if we find ourselves in that foxhole of viewing others, uh, other Christians or a, a spouse as the enemy, we need to remember this. He humbled himself to meditate on that the god of glory humbled himself and took the form of a servant why well paul puts it elsewhere in a beautiful phrase in 1 timothy 1 christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i'm the worst Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. This humble, sacrificial act was purposeful to save sinners like you, to save sinners like me. And when we're willing to realize that we mess up our marriages because of our sin, here's the hope. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When we realize that the one thing that unites all our disordered relationships in our lives is is ourselves because of our sin, then there's great hope because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And growth in humility comes when we cultivate this gospel-shaped mind. And remember that we are the worst of sinners for whom Christ died. And that by His grace, we are called to share the mind of Christ who humbled Himself. So last week, the command to contend together as one man for the faith of the gospel, we need to do that. But the only way we're going to do that is if we're united together. And the only thing that has power to unite such a rabble of sinners like this, repentant sinners, we trust, saints in Christ Jesus, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. An active meditation upon this gospel, an active application of this truth to our own hearts. That will bring unity. That's the only thing that can bring unity here. The unity that we enjoy at this time is because of that. Any strengthening of our unity as we stand for the gospel will come as each one of us apply this truth, particularly to our own hearts. This morning, it will be very tempting to think, I'm so glad that he's here today. I'm so glad that she's here today. Oh, you've missed the point. Apply to ourselves. When we come to Christ, One of the things we're liberated from is living our lives for ourselves, isn't it? How terribly self-conscious we are and self-focused we are. And how wonderful that the gospel frees us from self-absorption to really live our lives, to glorify and worship one who's worthy of our absorption, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can use our gifts and our talents, our love, our marriages, our homes, our lives in humble service of others so that they can hear the good news about Jesus. Because the gospel frees us to live that way, doesn't it? That's the first thing to remember. He humbled himself. And and, and lastly, secondly, therefore God exalted him. There are lots of people out there who will think that uh, we're absolutely crazy and stupid for being Christians. That it's a very dumb thing to live your life to serve others. It's a very foolish thing to waste your life uh, seeking in a united way to proclaim the news that Christ Jesus came in the world for sinners. To live your life for Jesus and his gospel, people think you're just dumb. And so we need to remember this important second phrase, therefore God exalted him. As we look to Christ and see how the God of glory humbled himself to to be a servant even to death on a cross, we then need to remember that that humility and that sacrifice, which so much of the world thinks is ridiculous or pointless, we know it's not, because therefore God exalted him. Look at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that we would be absolutely crazy not to have Jesus at the center of our lives? we would be absolutely foolish not to have Jesus at the center of this church because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead shows us that He is Lord. There there will never be a time, nor will you ever find a place where Jesus will not have the right to be served or worshipped or obeyed as the Lord of every creature in the universe. There is not one place that he does not rule over and is not worthy to be worshipped as King, Saviour, and Lord. Not to live with Jesus as the boss of your life is to live foolishly in a fantasy world, for Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is a coming day when all will humbly bow the knee and confess the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and so glorify God. And and verse 10 is pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Every knee will bow. Every knee in heaven. Every knee on earth. Every knee under the earth. Pretty much covers everything I know about. Every knee will bow and acknowledge and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not everyone will do so willingly on that day, but all will bow. For Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice for me the logic of the word therefore in verse 9. It is because Jesus humbled himself, because he humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. There is in the nature, in the character of God, this delight in humility. God delights in and exalts those who sacrificially humble themselves. My guess is uh, worldly wisdom is not to go into the workplace, not to go into school or university or wherever you are and live your life to serve others. People will think, well, that's just foolish. You're going to get stepped on. You're going to be pushed down as others go up. You'll be a great doormat as others push on ahead of you. To to live in that way, the world will tell you, is utterly foolish, except we're not thinking in just this world, are we? God is watching all that we do. And as we live with humble, sacrificial service of others, so that they may come to know Jesus Christ is Lord, God sees that and He delights in it. To live with a gospel-shaped mind that, that, that lives that way, humbly serving others with the purpose that they can come to know Jesus is a life that delights and glorifies God. This is a life that God will commend, that God will honor for all eternity, for it is a life that glorifies Him. And so it's crucial as a church, if we want to advance the gospel, if we want to be in gospel partnership together here in Edinburgh, then each one of us needs to continue to cultivate a gospel-shaped mind. What I'm amazed at as I read the New Testament is that the enormous and glorious truth of the gospel is applied to such trivially small things. But this is what we must do. And so if you're here today and you're nursing hurt in your heart, you've been hurt by other Christians. Maybe you, you um, are struggling with bitterness today. Maybe there's people you've not talked to for years now, even though you're members of this church. Maybe There's people that you will, if you find out they're on the rotor, you will not be on that rotor with them because you were in the right and they did you wrong. And You said to yourself, I'll never serve them. I'll never serve with them. I'll never forgive them. Then we need to cultivate a gospel shaped mind. And look at this the practicality of verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Is that what's really motivating our hearts? We we may dress it up as a theological difference. We may dress it up as something else. But really the bottom of it is this. It's selfish ambition. It's vanity in our own lives. It's conceit in our own lives. Christians can have this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There are times when it's, it's easier to have this sort of attitude and humility, isn't there? Especially when in the presence of greatness. You may be pretty good at tennis, but if someone was to introduce you to um, Andy Murray, you're not going to be rushing in and say, hey, let's have a game, Andy. I'll show you a few of my strokes. Or, you know, you play a bit of guitar and uh, you have the good fortune of meeting Eric Clapton. You're not going to go up to Eric and say, Eric, I want to show you a few chords. Look at this. Now, we we know, we're amongst greatness. We we adopt this humble attitude because we know where we are, right? The challenge comes is when you think you're better than someone else. When you think you're above them. Now, here is the test of humility. We may need to examine our hearts and and ask ourselves, what vain conceit is this that thinks I'm better than others? What selfish ambition is in my heart that I should think that of them? In fact, the scriptures say we should consider others better than ourselves. Actually, objectively, uh, you may be better than them, I don't know, in some way, I don't know. But the command is to consider others. To put yourself in the place of humility. It is an active choice, isn't it? An active choice to serve. To say, actually, this is going to put me out. and I wanted to do this. But actually, your concern, your care is more important than mine. I'll set mine aside. So, I can serve you and help you. That's what's being called about here, isn't it? To take the lofty, wonderful truth of the gospel down to that simple level. How do you view your other Christians? In what ways do we serve others here? Husbands, have you served your wife in some way in this past week? Or do you expect her to do everything for you? Pick up all your mess, do everything you want because. Well, you're the man. Men. Do you just look around the room and see who's least important and think, okay, they can do this job? Or are you quick at the head of the queue and say, no, I will do this job. I will serve. I will wash up. I will clear up. I'll put the chairs out. I'll do that. To humbly consider others better than yourself. My friends, we will live like that when we get the gospel. That's why I said at the beginning. What will stop us as a church from really achieving these goals of reaching out with the gospel, building up with the gospel, and sending people out with the gospel, this goal of glorifying God with fulfilling and obeying the Great Commission, what will really hold us back is an absence of, a lack of understanding of this gospel so that with proud and conceited hearts, we refuse to serve one another and we refuse to serve others. That, my friends, is a recipe for disunity. And so we need to cultivate a gospel-shaped mind. Your attitude should be the same as of Christ Jesus. He humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. And when we live like this, a church united with a gospel mind, then we are living lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. Again, I want you to know that I see so much of this happening in our church. I really am very encouraged to see how many people are humbly serving others with the gifts, abilities they have, so the gospel will go out. I'm thrilled by it. And I want to ask you, if you're not one of those, come and join us. Consider the greatness of Christ and this gospel. Seek his grace. I need his grace day by day to live like this, don't you? I seem to... uh, Something happens in the night and I wake up all selfish and proud again. And I need every morning to remind myself of the gospel that I may live with the mind of Christ as prayed.